Welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Uh, before we get started here, just want to give a shout out to the Patreon supporters. You guys are awesome. If uh, if you're not a supporter and you have benefited from the show, please consider uh, joining my Patreon team over there. You can find the link in the description. Uh, if you For other ways to, to support the podcast, you can uh, subscribe on YouTube if you're watching this and, and uh, you haven't subscribed yet. Or you can leave me a uh, five-star review on Apple Podcasts and give me a comment there. That'd be awesome. Really appreciate you guys and uh, everyone who supported the show thus far. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about The Beauty of the Lord, Theologic, Theology as Aesthetics uh, by Jonathan King, Dr. Jonathan King. And uh, this is an awesome book that I've had on my shelf for a while, but I had a uh, opportunity to read it now because... Jonathan King, Dr. Jonathan King, JK, is coming on the podcast, uh, and we're going to be talking about his work here today. So I'm really excited. Let's uh, just jump right in. Hey, JK, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, this is huge. I really, really enjoyed this book. Uh, before we get in, so we have a, a mutual friend, Paul Minata. He said I he, he said I had to ask you about your your judo time specifically. Uh, I. I believe you you were beaten by a, a dude who had who had one leg who, who lost it in, in in Nam I think. Yeah. yeah, well, that's quite the throwback. Uh, take so yeah, I mean, just you know, kudos for Paul for, uh, for <laughs> ma- making sure you you asked me that question. Yeah, yeah that that's kind of a, a law a standing uh, piece of humor between us. I uh, I actually came to uh, it's related to my coming to faith. I came to. Uh, really a, 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 tr- a real serious and and uh, understanding of the gospel and and uh, uh, what the whole idea of being saved is all about uh, in my adolescence at age 14. And that was at a local church, not not the church that, that me and my family or my family was part of, um, but a, a local independent uh, uh, Protestant church. Hmm. And they had a judo program open, open up to the community. And it was um, anybody could come, you know, and and then um, they, it would be on Friday nights and Saturday. And if you wanted to stay for a Bible study afterwards, you know, you can, you could, but it wasn't obligatory. Long story short, that's where I, I became a Christian about six months into my uh, practice of judo. I started at 14. Um, by the time I was, you know, in a senior in high school, I, I had competed in all the local and regional tournaments and, uh, you know, was, uh, wound up com- uh, competing in a, um, an East Coast tournament. I think I was around 16 or so. Uh, a tall, gangly kid I was, was trying to build my, you know, trying to work out and, and uh, get my, uh, my, my health and, and, you know, muscle fitness and all that kind of uh, improving. But, uh, but judo was was a great outlet for me. And at this East Coast Championship, I was paired against this guy named Joe Walters. And mm-hmm. Joe Walters was exactly as Paul had informed you. He, uh, as I informed him, <laughs> he was 
he, he, he learned his judo in Japan under some masters in Japan, but then subsequently he, he was deployed to um, Vietnam and then uh, lost his leg in, in a bomb explosion. Wow. But, but the rest of his rest of him was intact and he continued judo as a one-legged judoka. So he was a big barrel chested man, but by missing one leg, I mean, all the way up to, you know, all the way up to his groin or, or just about, um, his weight class was, at, you know, at my weight class. Right. <laughs> and, uh, so he was, he was a, a real powerful guy. So I went out there, you know, what, you don't even know what to think when you're fighting a one-legged person. Like you don't want to be right. like, I, I don't want to take advantage of him or something like that. But, mm-hmm. uh, but he just grabbed me, judo's grappling and throwing and, and, and rest and, uh, a lot of movement on the ground as well. And he grabbed me and, and just did some sort of move where we fell to the ground. And then he just wrapped me up. He wrapped me up with it in his big barrel chest and just, just, you know, virtually suffocated me. (laughs) So, so it was, it was good, you know, humbling, humbling, you know, but uh, I can tell you, I was not the only one (laughs) that that he bested. He was uh he he uh, he was a foe, uh, a strong competitor against anyone in his class. Yeah, well, so th- that's that's fantastic. Thanks, uh, Paul, for for bringing that up. So I uh, I wrestled uh, all the way through college, mm. and that that was uh, wasn't a super theme, but we had we had wrestlers missing limbs and, and arms and uh, or, or legs, and some of them turned out to be national champions, and so. Mm. They mm-hmm. they threw it the, the adversity there they became even tougher and yeah, yeah they wrestle up at a higher weight class but uh, mm-hmm. they were also missing limbs so it was a little bit you know it was the 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 uh, advantage yeah. was was even there that's yeah. that's so cool to to hear that that you got uh, that God brought you into the fold through judo that's that's fantastic mm-hmm. did did yeah. you continue with that do you still do judo judo at all I did it up till uh, I started at fourteen I did it till twenty one mm-hmm. um, around I think when I was twenty. I competed actually in the national championships. Whoa! Didn't win, didn't win the championship, but but I, I made it. You have to go through districts, then regional, then then national. Mm-hmm. So uh, I made it to national, um, and it was a lot of fun. Just a great experience. Um, shortly after that, uh, I had uh, wound up getting into a bit of a scuffle with <laughs> with some. I was not not hanging out with the most, uh, you know, hmm. polite, polite crowd. And uh, so anyway, uh, uh, I broke my ankle in three places fighting a guy who thought who, who said, you know, I couldn't take him. <laughs> so so wow. my, you know, the Lord has refined my ego a lot since then. But and thankfully he did. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but back then it was, uh, you know, my ego was always um, telling me what to do. Yeah. And so I fought this guy. But uh, when I when I spun around, this was in Englishtown, New Jersey, at the National J- Drag Racing Championships. We were hanging out. And he uh, he broke my ankle. Uh, or I, I broke my ankle in three places. And then that game over. We just stopped yeah. right there. But that ended my judo career. It actually ended my my general athletic career. Wow. But, um, you know, I mean, I'm an older guy now, and I look back and I see um, just how how the Lord used that and to yeah. 
not only subdue my ego, but just, you know, teach me uh, that it's, you know, not my strength and all that kind of stuff that, yeah. uh, you know, life is to be lived. So I'm grateful. Yeah, well, that's awesome. So so God brought you into the fold through judo and then he took judo away. Uh, so how how did you end up getting into, you, you became a believer. How did you end up getting into theology then? Yeah, uh, actually, the uh, I wanted to go to Bible college right out of high school, but my my parents uh, there was kind of a division in the house. I my 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 new newfound faith, as it were, went against the grain mm. of, of my parents, and they they didn't like it. They they didn't uh, they thought I was just part of a cult or or whatever, and right. uh, so so I asked to go to a Bible college, and they said no. Um, they wouldn't support me at all, but, um, but I was good in math and science. So I, they say, look, we'll support you if you go to, uh, you know, get, go to, um, Drexel for engineering is this in Philadelphia. Hmm. So I applied quickly because, uh, the, the, the season was just about up, got into Drexel and, and became, went into engineering and I did engineering for a couple, couple decades. And, um, and then in the, I was in San Diego at the time. That's where I also got to know Paul uh, in, in San Diego. And um, I worked for a company there, Qualcomm. It's, it's a pretty high-tech, uh, cutting-edge company in digital communications. And then I, I, I transitioned because I was good with working, interfacing with customers. I transitioned to marketing. So I did that for half a dozen years. But then the Lord, you know, I really started to hunger and thirst for for that the, theological foundation and and just mm-hmm. kind of get a coherency in what I believed, and and a certain confidence in what I believed. And so I decided to just uh, cash in all my chips, as it were, um, after eighty three, ninety three hundred. Yeah, after 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 thirty years, actually, after thirty years, I I went to seminary uh, full time, and. Uh, at Westminster Seminary in uh, uh, California, I wasn't planning upon upon entering seminary. I wasn't necessarily shooting to then go on to a doctorate. I just said, let me get a good seminary education, and and then you know we'll, we'll see what goes on after that. But by the third year in seminary, I um, I had a real desire. To, I, I felt this was just scratching the the uh, surface. Uh, in seminary, and I wanted to pursue things more seriously and in a more steeped way in uh, mm-hmm. for my doctorate. So I went to Trinity International um, uh, Divinity School, Evangelical Divinity School, uh, after uh, my time at Westminster. Yeah, and and so uh, I believe that this is—is is this an adaptation? The the beauty of the Lord is this an adaptation of your dissertation? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, the it's actually, you know, typically when you when you get a dissertation published, at least the ones I've I'm seen fairly commonly, it's, it, you know, dissertations tend to be can be bloated, can put a lot of time mm-hmm. in stuff that may be for a published material, you know, all the literature review, all, all this stuff. Um, and so, so oftentimes dissertations kind of shrink. Uh, or, or you, you pare them down a bit. Um, mm-hmm. But in my case, in, in my case, I, I only in my introduction, as, as uh, if you've since you've read read the the book, um, only in my introduction do I do do with kind of a, a survey and a, kind of a brief history of uh, theological aesthetics. 
So it's not, it wasn't bloated that way. So I wound up expanding it quite a bit. I probably mm-hmm. added about a close to a, at least 25%, maybe, maybe uh, closer to a third of additional material and Lexham presses with whom, who, who it's published through was, was really great. They, uh, they, they kind of gave me that leeway, which I, I really appreciated because it filled in a lot of the gaps and, uh, that I needed to to really put out a, a piece uh, for public consumption. Yeah, well, it, I was going to say it's it is pretty comprehensive. It's 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 uh, it's really awesome. We're not going to be able to talk about all of it, unfortunately. But uh, for those who are interested by this conversation, I definitely recommend you grab that book. Uh, J.K., did you did you do this under Van Hooser? Was he your doctor father? Yeah, yeah, he was. He was. In fact, when I was well, last year in seminary, I I, I called. We had a conference call. I was studying the works of Hans Urs von Balthasar, 20th century uh, uh, Swiss German theologian. And he has the, you know, he's kind of the contemporary, contemporary up th- uh, taking into account last century of, um, uh, of modern the- theological aesthetics. He has 15 volume uh, uh, works on truth, goodness and beauty. Mm-hmm. He starts off with beauty, seven volumes on beauty and five volumes on um, uh, goodness, which he calls theodrama. Right. And then uh, uh, truth he calls theologic. Anyway, I was studying that uh, out of interest. I was like, uh, and I and I got turned on to it in Van Hooser's book, Drama of Doctrine. The Drama of Doctrine, uh, he, he makes quite a few references to von Balthasar. And uh, so so that kind of steered me in that direction to explore it. And I called up Kevin uh, and introduced myself and told him what my area of interest was. And he was delighted. He said, you know, uh, it's an area that he's been wanting to see addressed. And um, he invited me to apply. And the, the rest is history. Yeah, he's such a great dude. He was my uh, first first chair on my master's thesis. Uh oh. Just a, just a fantastic dude. I love him. Uh, Charna, so you're you're another member uh, in the line of uh, Van Ho- Van Hooser's disciples or, or students uh, that I've had on, and I'm trying to coax him into coming on himself. So I'm appreciate sure the work. Will. I'm sure he will. Yeah. Did, did, uh, can I ask you a question? What what yeah. was your what was your master thesis on? Yeah, I was actually defending his uh, authorial analogy from remythologizing mm-hmm. theology against the charge that it would make God the author of evil. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to advance that. I think it's, uh, I mean, you know, Dr. Van Hoos, uh, he's very creative and he'll grab an idea and he'll just kind of throw it out there and go, oh, this is interesting. And then he moves on to the next book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, Dr. Van Hooser, this is a really, really good thing. You need to stick with this more. Holy cow. And he's yeah. just like, oh, no, that was 10 years ago. I'm done with that. And so I, I've been trying to coax him to, to take up the authorial analogy again, especially he's working on Providence right now and it mm. works perfectly. Hmm. Did you, uh, do you plan, uh, uh, I know you're, you're the one asking the questions, but do you plan to <laughs> that area of, uh, of study for, uh, postgraduate work? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I, I want to go into philosophy. Um, yeah. so we're looking at, looking at trying to do a master's in, in philosophy now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I do love it. I, I kind of want to do the philosophy to help with the theology yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, program kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, cause that was, that was one of my big, my big areas is to say, you know, Van Hooser's kind of coming from more of a continental, uh, theological yeah. side, uh, really well with analytic philosophy, uh, his, his model at least. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah we'll, not, we'll see. I'm not steep to, uh, in, in the philosophical specialties, but, 
but I, I, I appropriate it and, and use it for my mm-hmm. theological benefit as much as possible. So yeah. I, I yeah. hear what you're saying. Yeah. I caught, I caught some of that actually in the book too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so back to you, enough about me here. Uh, of the three medieval transcendentals, you know, you got truth, goodness, and beauty. Beauty usually gets the, gets the shaft in the, in theology. Uh, why do, why do you think that is? Why do people neglect beauty in, in theology? Well, you know, one thing you want to say up front is uh, you have to look at the different Christian traditions. Uh, mm-hmm. Roman Catholic tradition and, and Eastern Orthodox don't give as short a shrift to, to mm-hmm. beauty. Okay. Um, maybe in, in Eastern Orthodoxy, maybe the, the, the category that fits there best would be a religious aesthetics. But um, and Roman, von Balthasar was a, a Catholic. Yeah, right. And and. So they've kept the Thomistic uh, metaphysical framework as, mm-hmm. as something that they work with and, and interact with. Um, and, and so that's why beauty has kind of remained, because uh, in med- medieval philosophical philosophy and theology, truth, beauty and goodness were, were transcendentals of, of reality. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the Reformation, you know, I'm in the Protestant tradition, the Reformed tra- uh, uh, trajectory of that tradition. And beauty was considered, you know, um, it, it didn't, it wasn't front and center with issues of salvation and soteriology or ecclesiology. In fact, iconoclasm was was a big thing in tear, tearing down images and 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 things, portraying uh, spiritual things, uh, beauty in about spiritual things or about God. So it had kind of a margin. It got marginalized. It was considered into, incidental, along with its deceptive or seductive uh, qualities that it could have. And so it wasn't essential from there, from the reformed point of view, in that in their their context, fifteenth, sixteenth, seventeenth century. Uh, it didn't factor into justification, sanctification, all these things in a way that was metaphysically uh, significant. Mm-hmm. It really was just more of a, a cultural phenomenon that you, you could you could appreciate it, you could not appreciate it, but it had little bearing on your Christian understanding of the world and 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 the, theological understanding of the world. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's that's really helpful. Uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking back on, on Dr. Manich's Calvin class and, and thinking of the iconoclasm, and that makes a lot of sense why the Reformed tradition and, and evangelicals yeah. who, who come out of that would mm-hmm. would be a little bit more allergic to that, or maybe not allergic, but just it hasn't been as developed or focused on as, uh, to the same degree that Roman Catholics or, or Eastern Orthodox would. Be- before we go on any further, um, this is going to be really hard, but what what is beauty? I know like people debate this all the time. Just yeah. can, can we get some kind of uh, conception of, of what we're talking about? <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. I mean, be- beauty, you know, it's it, it, that, that's that's another problem, by the way, is um, defining it. <laughs> right, right. It's, you know, uh, uh, getting a grasp on how, how is it subjective only or is it objective only? Mm-hmm. Is it objective and subjective? It's a, so I argue that uh, not just theologically, but philosophically, that beauty is objectively real. But the qualities of beauty are, are if, we, if we talk about just quickly in reference to the transcendentals of truth and goodness, the qualities of beauties stand out in a, in a unique way. They're an end to themselves. 
Hmm. Truth, truth is not necessarily an end to itself. It, it's leading you somewhere. Not knowledge leads you somewhere. Uh, yeah. Your your will is is choosing, you know, to go in a certain direction or to choose a certain thing. Beauty is is something when when you apprehend it, it uh, and in different degrees, but it it kind of it, it's its own fulfilled delight. You don't mm-hmm. use beauty to to do something with it to get something else or to improve yourself. You delight in beauty, or beauty elicits uh, that kind of pleasurable response. So it's it's a uh, it's the uni, unified. Um, unified whole of, of a thing that has uh, some what we call aesthetic qualities that we can put names on, such as its perfect harmony or symmetry, proportion, uh, the unity of the whole, perhaps simplicity, perhaps delicacy, depending on the context. And and those things are, are in a sense, th- those terms are kind of trying to grasp at what it is that's so appealing to us, whether it's through visual or audio, audible, or, or, or just through this synthesis of all of our senses. And uh, so, so beauty is that which pleases us uh, in, in a way of what, what you would call aesthetic delight or aesthetic pleasure. And what pleases us, we, we try to label with various aesthetic terms, which I, which I include in an overarching term called fittingness. And uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't, obviously it's not a term I made up and it's not a term that's um, germane only to aesthetics, but I think it applies here because it's, uh, it captures, you can have something that is somewhat fitting, but not perfectly fitting and, and, diff- and it, it's in different degrees. And beauty in this life, in this world, is in degrees. <laughs> and uh, fittingness is a good way to kind of capture both a broad view of beauty as well as maybe a narrow view of, view of beauty. In other words, something that is explicitly beautiful to the eye uh, or ears uh, versus something that is more of the, the order of, you know, more of a, a macro level of comprehension that, that aesthetically pleases us. We've all heard that the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And uh, I like that they use this term fittingness because it seems to uniquely like combat that. But but how do you go about if someone someone objects that beauty is in the eye of the holder? What what do you say to argue for uh, an aesthetic realism? Well, for one thing, I want to say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Hmm. <laughs> so uh, you know, I I, don't, I think it's incorrect to dis- dismiss that. What I would modify, of course, is that beauty is not only in the eye of the beholder. Hmm. Beauty, uh, the, the eye of the beholder is, receives in its perception of beauty, there's some sort of sense of aesthetic pleasure or delight in the thing being perceived. But the thing being perceived isn't, it's not manufacturing that feeling inside of us. That's how God designed and created us to perceive things in such a way that we are able to perceive beauty, perceive beautiful things, perceive the aesthetic dimension of something. So um, the qualities of beauty are within the thing itself. Uh, but the, the the eye of the beholder is what perceives that and delights in that perception. Hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah. So we, we discover beauty out there. We don't invent it right. uh, subjectively. Okay. Okay. Um, do you think some people think different things are beautiful 
than others. Um, mm, yeah. Is, is that a result result of the fall that we don't all see this, the same thing as beautiful? Yeah, I think obviously the fall corrupts everything, right? It corrupts, mm-hmm. it corrupts the overall, not, not, not to the point of annihilation, but I mean, there's truth in the world, there's goodness in the world, and there's yeah. beauty in the world, but it's compromised, right? It's a compromised uh, thing. So it's not, it's not at its, in its pure form in any of those, those uh, category, realist categories. It's not in its purest and, and wholesome form. Um, so I'm sorry, what was the question again? Well, yeah. So, um, oh yeah. I, I, yeah. Different difference in aesthetic uh, uh, temperaments, yeah, yeah. I guess. Yeah. So, so yeah, sorry. Uh, lost, lost train of thought. So, so with a compromise sense, um, we, A, we don't appreciate the beauty that as, mu- as much as we possibly were, were made to appreciate, just, you know, in terms of that aesthetic pleasure, that aesthetic delight, whether we're talking about creation or, or works, uh, man-made works, cultured works, um, even, even just uh, certain contexts of things, uh, you know, a, a, a beautiful, you know, an an old an old man or woman just you know that may their their youth may have ha- has faded away long ago but yet you can just sense a certain th- there's a beautiful qualities that 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 kind of strike you well mm. we we perceive that but in part it's compromised we don't we don't really appreciate as much as we possibly could and and it's hard to say that you know it's undeterminable in what sense the fall has kind of um Taint it and in some sense distorted or spoiled uh, not just our own perception of it, but but the world in and of itself. Um, so and also our own, you know, couple that with our finitude, yeah. a finitude that will be transformed. We'll still be finite in the age to come, but it'll be you know a, a heightened, a transformed finitude. So it'll and it will be a transformed finitude with the perfect purity of us to be able to behold truth, goodness, and beauty in the, in, in its full mm-hmm. form and in its full flavor. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm, I want that. I can't wait for that. That's going to be fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so with your, your work here is a work of uh, theological aesthetics, uh, which is different than na- uh, natural theology of beauty or theology of the arts, or religious aesthetics. Yeah. Um, so you're you're actually giving like a, a dogmatic account of the beauty of the Lord, and and this has to do with theology proper, uh, like mm-hmm. doctrine of God type stuff, mm-hmm. which just brings me to the question: uh, is is beauty a divine attribute, or is it like an emergent property that like comes from from all the rest of God's attributes? I know you hold to divine simplicity mm-hmm. um, as well. So mm-hmm. can you s- explain what what beauty is in relation to God's uh, being? Yeah. So so another way, another term that's used for attributes sometimes people make a distinction i don't is is one of god's perfections yeah. okay so um you know i uh, i do i do uh, hold i i do think uh divine simplicity is a is the best way to understand you know the essence of god mm-hmm. in, in, in unity and trinity yeah. without without various divisions of of his attributes but um it's part of his nature it's it, the, the what what grounds ontologically grounds my conviction that there is a, uh, a have, having a realist view of beauty, an objective objectivist view of beauty, 
is that the ground of that is from the uh, sourced from the attributes of God that imbue his works, that imbue his works of creation and redemption and ultimately the consummation. So, so, so the, the ground of beauty is God himself because he himself has the perfection of beauty. And that's what, that's why beauty is a, is a real thing, not just a, an axiological judgment, but an ontological thing. But it's, uh, it's unique in how we appreciate it mm-hmm. and, and how it's a, an end to itself. Yeah, I love I love the end of this end in itself type language. It's, it's so helpful to think through. So, yeah. uh, you 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 recount how Bavink talks about or Bavink uh, talks about uh, glory being synonymous with with God's beauty. Can yeah. you can you flesh that out? Like, what, what do you make of glory and and beauty when it comes to God? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, um, if you and maybe I don't know if you read read through my book uh, quickly mm-hmm. or not, but if you you'll see that the the major players throughout church history that really focused in on a theological aesthetics, uh, virtually all of them, uh, maybe not necessarily uh, Anselm or Irenaeus or something, but but the certainly from Aquinas on, uh, and actually back to uh, maybe even Augustine. Um, Glory was always associated with beauty. Mm-hmm. It was somehow bound up with it. Now, they, the articulation of what that relationship was was generally not, not parsed out real well. Right. right. Um, in the case of Bavink, which who I have a lot of uh, a lot of admiration and, and appreciation for, um, he bound it up with glory uh, as 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 being glory. The, yeah. glory of, the glory of God add extra. The glory of God manifested out of himself is an emanation of God's, uh, a work of God's beauty. Um, but, but, the, but the glory of God, you know, from a biblical uh, uh, look, is, it, it actually is associated with beauty, but not just beauty. It's associated with God and his work. It's associated with various attributes of God. So uh, I think Bob Inc., as much as I love Bob Inc., I think he, he made a mistake there in just tying the two or equating the two together, I should say. I do tie the two together, but, I, but I, my, my argument is that beauty is a quality of God's glory, not, you know, just like wetness, we might say, is a quality of liquid beauty. We mm-hmm. wouldn't say wetness, wetness is liquid beauty. I'm sorry, I said liquid beauty. I meant liquid water. We wouldn't say wetness is li- liquid water. We would say it's a quality of it. And so uh, beauty is a quality of God's glory, which means as God manifests his glory in all the different works he does, there's an aesthetic dimension to it. There, there, there must needs be because we're, it's, it's God acting out of himself. And he doesn't withhold or suspend certain parts of himself to enact other parts. He, he he gives himself wholly in his glorious work. Yeah, I, I love that. That's why I wanted to, to bring up Bavin because I know uh, I, I'm a big fan as well. But it was it's interesting to see his take on that in, in making the two one and then your parsing out. I, I also appreciate that you um, you didn't make you, you didn't make all of theology about beauty. Um, and, and you mentioned that in the book as well. Um, and I think that's really helpful. Sometimes in biblical uh, theological studies, you you see the whole everything is a temple now. And I appreciate the temple work. And I saw you appropriate some of that too. 
mm-hmm. but not every, I mean, these are different perspectives that we can look on. And, and that's important to keep that in mind that it's a perspective. And I really, really appreciated uh, you going in on that and, and your conversation of glory. And you went into the Hebrew a little bit was, uh, was, was helpful to say, let's not absolutize this, but let's, let's look at this for what it is and enrich our theology because of it. Um, and you go through this threefold breakdown of, of the beauty of God. You got beauty at intra, which is like God's uh, imminent triune life, uh, mm-hmm. display of God's beauty at extra, uh, his external work, and then uh, the person work and benefits of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, can you, can you explain, uh, just f- uh, flesh those out a little bit? God, God's own, starting with God's own imminent uh, triune mm-hmm. life. Like how is the ad intra uh, beautiful? Yeah. Well, uh, to start with, if it's true, uh, as I'm, as I argue for that beauty is both objectively real and subjectively experienced mm-hmm. that's in my mind, that should not only apply to the works outside of God, but the work within God, you know, the, the, the life of God within himself. Mm-hmm. In other words, there's a subjective element of the beautiful in God as, as well as the, you know, his very nature having uh, qualities that you could are beautiful yeah. um, or, or his, his overall uh, essence. The, uh, the subjective aspect would be, again, as an end in itself, the perfect delight, self-satisfaction, repose, uh, beatitude is, is kind of the, the catch-all term I use. The beatitude of God in himself is his self-sustained and eternal delight and, and pleasure within the life of God, within the life of the Trinity. And, and that's because the, 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 the perfect harmony and, and unity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is all bound up in the, in the very life of God. And so it's objectively there in the, 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 the aspect of the father's paternity, the aspect of the son's filiation, the aspect of the spirit's spiration. Mm-hmm. That's within the life of God that's, that's truly beautiful. And God experiences, well, he doesn't experience it in the way we do, sure. but it's, 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 a, it's, a, um, it's his own perfect beatitude within himself. And that expresses itself in all that God does. Yeah, I, I appreciated uh, you also, I think in this section, um, you quoted from Graham Cole and, yeah. and another just absolute legend. I love that guy. Mm-hmm. But but he you quoted him saying, well, why shouldn't we think of God has, as having uh, as having beatitude or emotion like and being being happy in himself? Mm-hmm. Just because you hold the impassibility doesn't mean that God isn't delighting in himself mm-hmm. at intra. Yeah. And I, I thought that was really a really helpful clarification that sometimes gets missed in discussions on classical theism and you think of just this kind of inert God, you can't really picture, throw yeah. out all your categories, no emotion yeah. um, versus having, you know, the, the actus purist. He's, he's always uh, experiencing his, his own beatitude. Now, now he, he can never get more beatitude or less beatitude than he right. is. Right. It's always, it's always in its perfect integrity uh, of what it is. But uh, if you look at say the, uh, the, the event of Christ on the cross, you know the the suffering and pa- the passability and passability of Christ is always a, um, a an issue that that is debated and, mm-hmm. and parsed out. But without going into that debate, what I would say is that even the the death of God the Son in the person of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, the within the life of God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there the, the beatitude was just in full full operation yeah. like he was he was delighting not he god the triune god was delighting in the the, the son in his economic identity taking on the sin of the world yes 
Yes. And th- this is why I love the authorial analogy, because I think it, it does kind of help that out. So God, the author, you know, God, the, the tri-personal author is, is still enjoying the story as yep. he wrote it. While the character, uh, Christ, who is, you know, this, uh, Qua character in the story, at, mm-hmm. uh, you know, intra intranarratively is going through hell on the cross, mm-hmm. and and I think yeah. that that uh, just another shout out to to Dr. Van Hooser to to take up the model again, and <laughs> uh, and keep using that. Um, <laughs> so we have we have some some you're, 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 you're going to bait him to get on this podcast. That's right. Day. That's yeah. right. Amen. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so, so JK, we, we have the, the ad intra and now, uh, the display of God's beauty in his external work ad extra. Um, I think maybe we could flesh this out a little bit too, but, but first I I just had this thought about how, how does this relate to, uh, the theology of beauty? Cause we're, we're talking about theological, uh, we're talking about theological, uh, ethics. Sorry. I mean, um, natural theology of beauty. Uh, does, does this relate? So we're, we're looking at the ad extra works of God. Mm-hmm. Is this is this synonymous with? Is this related to the the natural theological discussion of beauty? Well, I mean, the natural theological discussion of beauty is an aspect of it. Okay, but the 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 ad extra of God, the the manifest external work of God, is is starts with creation, yeah. but it doesn't doesn't stop at creation. Sure. It's so in the created order, both in this in our natural environmental world as well as the the cosmos uh, at large. Um, yeah, is a man of, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God, you know, yeah. um, Psalm 19. The, so at about the, the most cosmic level, as well as down to the most infinitesimal level, there's, you know, the, God's beauty is, in, it has imbued all of his works. Mm-hmm. Granted, we, we take into account now the fall and so forth, but, um, but, but that's how, how it was. But it's in all of God's work, so that includes his work of redemption. That includes his work of consummation, which is the operational, you know, working of, of the glory of God, the life of God, uh, you know, in, in bringing about his His foreordained purposes. Yeah. Okay. So um, so is is the person, work, and benefits of Christ, does that, is that a subcategory of the display of, of God's uh, uh, external works of beauty? Yeah, I mean, I, I've I've never thought of it in terms of a subcategory, only because of how the the whole canon of Scripture kind of points to and and is uh, fulfilled in in the person of Christ. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't want to quibble over your phrase. What I would what I would say is is the phrase that uh, uh, what I prefer to say is the phrase that I gleaned from uh, Ephesians, which is that all things are summed up in Christ. Yeah. Everything is summed up in Christ. And, and, and therefore, whether we're talking natural beauty or, or other types of, you know, the uh, theology, the arts or religious, all, all, all of these things are summed up in the person of Christ. Yeah, man, this is a good reminder. I, I, I was going to, talk about this at the end but it just keeps coming up for me again and again that your your work uh it, it's really helped me to to love theology some more mm-hmm. um i i always focus i think uh, many people I, I really love apologetics and philosophy mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. truth right and then you kind of get into goodness and you're thinking well i'm kind of straying a little bit but it's okay mm-hmm. but but rarely do i go to beauty and mm-hmm. you know maybe beauty is soft and being a wrestler you know i don't want to talk about beauty, yeah. which is yeah. so silly it's so silly to think like yeah. that but yeah. your yeah. work is, is is helping me say god's plan is is true right so as as an apologist we want to argue that 
that uh, that this really did happen. And, uh, you know, when you're talking about the problem of evil, you want to defend God, that God's plan is good, right? So mm-hmm. you give a theodicy or you give a defense. Mm-hmm. But uh, you've helped me, you've reminded me and helped me uh, see more clearly that God's plan is, is beautiful. God is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, his works are beautiful. And his plan, which the culmination of his works, is a, is a beautiful thing. The theology ought to help us see God and, and delight in him as, as the mm-hmm. end in, in himself, which mm-hmm. so good. We need, that's, that's why we need more of this. So fantastic. I, if I could add, add uh, on to that a bit, um, the, the fall happens pretty quickly in the biblical narrative, you know, <laughs> yeah. but, but even in chapter two, Genesis, we see that, you know, the, the garden of Eden, uh, the, the, the etymological word for Eden is delight. God, God created this beautiful, lush, you know, just just uh, uh, amazing uh, environment for Adam and Eve to dwell in. And and uh, we don't get a lot of uh, description about that. Just kind of briefly, even the tree of <laughs> the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was the fruit was beautiful to Eve. Yeah. You know? So 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 that's in creation. Now, uh, the, the fall kind of, you know, kind of interrupts that a lot. Uh, yeah. and, and so that's why we have kind of a, a, a very diminished view uh, in, in that way after, after Genesis 3. And, and that's why the story of the Bible from Genesis 3 on doesn't lift up beauty as a, like a paramount thing or even an equal thing uh, to, to righteousness and holiness and, and, and goodness. Um, and, and I, I don't think that's because uh, I'm convinced that's not because beauty is of a lesser value uh, than than all the other uh, perfections of God. Uh, but but that in a broken world, yeah. in a broken world, what is paramount then and, and what what the, the Lord needed to do was uh, let his uh, his perfect righteousness work together with his perfect mercy hmm. fix the sin problem to ultimately ultimately transform the, the this world the whole cosmos into a heaven and earth so that 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 addressing sin and evil both sin within the, our fallenness and evil within the forces of darkness that I that I also hold to in a realist way yeah uh, in both of the, in both those categories or bo- those areas um there's a certain lack of fittingness to talk about the, the, uh, to, 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 to put at the front front and center beauty yeah. uh, un, until sin and evil get, get uh, vanquished altogether. When that happens, I believe that there'll be unquestionably, but the, the perception, the experience, our whole entire life will be filled with beauty in the, in the age to come. Yeah. I think that's a really good point, and that and addresses uh, or preempts some some pushback. That yes, the the fall. This is why we may not see it emphasized as much. I do think uh, you know a, a familiar term that you've already brought up from Van Balthazar, but who Van Hooser uses all the time. The, the theodrama, mm-hmm. like you said, uh, when we when we're in the eschaton, I think we can appreciate the beauty of the story uh, more fully. But even now, looking back, looking out, zooming out as as far as we can, well, we can through through scripture, mm-hmm. um, and we see that the great meta narrative or theodrama of scripture, we can see, yeah, it is it is still beautiful, even though we're in this time in this mm-hmm. moment experiencing mm-hmm. hardships of cancer mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. infertility and all sorts of stuff like mm-hmm. that. We can see that God 
you know, it's, it's cliche now, but there's a, there's a tapestry and we're looking maybe on the backside at a couple different threads, but the theodrama, and I think you, you were drawing this out in uh, looking at God's plan creation, incarnation, the cross and recreation, but that is a, a beautiful, beautiful story. Yeah. Now, one thing I take issue with would be the Augustinian view of beauty uh, in, a, in a cosmological uh, perspective. He, uh, it's kind of like, um, um, uh, ugliness, <laughs> if I could just put it in those simple terms, the ugliness of the universe was necessary mm. uh, to highlight and bring out the the, the beautiful virtues of, of of God, as if like like a like a a, a a a really beautiful diamond. The contrast of that against a black sure. backdrop, you know, stands out more. So 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 in that in that conception of beauty. It's an essential part of God's work, of, uh, you know, his his creation. Even um, I think I think that's incorrect. Hmm. I think that um, it's you know just like you know sin and evil is not essential <laughs> to to God's work yeah. uh, in order to highlight God God's other attributes or something. So I, I think that. Um, we have to keep things in a creational versus eschatological perspective. Mm -hmm. Creationally, creationally, yes, the, we, you know, you can say the the, the ugliness of of the world of, of within that that's despoils the cosmos itself mm -hmm. is is not an ugliness that will be present at all in the eschaton. Yeah, and so so um, it, it, there's a creational time frame. That that is the case, but the eschatological time frame removes all that all that's uh, uh, despoils the uh, perfect work of God. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. So, um, think it. I think you're. I think you're right. I, I um sometimes. Uh, so I work with uh, campus ministry, and sometimes my students, uh, college kids, college students, will say, "Yeah, you know, uh, evil is necessary because then we wouldn't know good or, or something like that." And, and you say, "Well, hey, let's let you know, let's read Genesis one." Uh, there, it, there's all is good and there's no evil. So they knew it and, and Adam and Eve knew what was good and they could talk with God, their name and animals, all sorts of stuff before the fall. So, no, uh, you don't need evil to, to be good. God was good for all eternity before evil came in. How, what do you make of um, God, God demonstrating? Uh, well, so you got incarnation, you got the cross and in those uh, in those two events, planning it to cause uh, the Felix culpa defense against evil. Mm -hmm. You see God revealing his nature more fully mm -hmm. that he is a redeeming God, that he is a, a God who triumphs over evil. Um, do you, do we get those without the fall? Yeah. Um, actually, I, I don't think so. <laughs> um, I think that uh, what we can say, at least to start with is that God as creator yeah. No, knowing God as creator, I should say, is not uh, as uh, complete as knowing God as creator and redeemer. Yes. And and knowing God as cre as your creator and redeemer is also not as complete as knowing God as creator, redeemer and consummator. Hmm. So, so the fullness of God in terms of his, the, the, the majestic display of, of, of the, the triune life of God. Yeah. Will will be revealed in the consummation. Um, the you know so so right now we we just want to you know appreciate that that kind of di difference. Yeah, 
I think that's great. I think that's a really important difference. And it's, yeah, it's so cool. We have, we have so much more to look forward to in, in the eschaton. Yeah. Um, yeah, even that's even saying that's kind of weird because people. Well, we're in the eschaton, okay, but in in the, in the in already, but not yet. Right, exactly. You get, it. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, okay, so so J.K., what pulling it all together here? Uh, what are some of the practical implications, like for the church, if we are to reclaim uh, and reemphasize the uh, the beauty of Christ and and theological uh, aesthetics uh, more more broadly? One of the things that if I'll, I'll give a little bit of preface to to my answer. Um, as I was dwelling on beauty, the, theologically considered, um, you know, I uh, it was clear to me, you know, in my uh, class in the Pentateuch, where I'm focusing on the foundations of uh, of, of creation in Genesis one through eleven, mm-hmm. and and you know, it became you know clear clear to me that. Um, I'm sorry. What, what was the focus again? Yeah, the uh, the practical implications for yeah, yeah, uh, church. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. That uh, um, even at the end of Genesis one, Adam, uh, humanity is the pinnacle of creation, the very zenith of, of all of God's creatures, mm. and and the only one in my in my argument, uh, the only creature uh, made in the image of God, and I'm including uh, I'm including angels and all okay. the creatures. So. Um, as I was thinking about beauty, I said, well, okay, human beings are the most, you know, we're the, we're, we're not just, you know, (laughs) the top of a predator, (laughs) predator prey thing, top of the very image of made in the image of God. And so I thought, well, how does beauty relate to that? How does, you know, I mean, up to us, Mm -hmm. us deemed, uh, not us created, human beings created, but also human beings redeemed and ultimately, of course, glorified. Yeah. And so, so what I, um, what I came to, to what, what came into focus for me was the idea that um, our, our, our life, our, our whole life, body and soul in both our being and our doing is we is to, we're called to reflect God yeah. in, in our being and our doing in every respect. Mm-hmm. And um, and that reflecting of God is, you know, is is a um, is the, the the effulgence of His glory in us. Yeah. And of course, we don't do that. We, we're still image bearers, even in the fall. But 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 our reflecting of that is so compromised now. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. And and so so theologically, you know, I wanted to kind of say, well. The work of Christ is to is God through Christ calling people to Himself, and and not just calling people to Himself and 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 saying you know my sacrifice has satisfied my injustice and and um, uh, your sins are forgiven and and therefore you you know you won't be condemned and and at the final judgment cast into hell. Yeah. Uh, but but really the whole thing is made in as an image bearer of God in creation. We are redeemed in the perfect image of Christ. We're conformed to His image mm. now, partially in this in this life, uh, and progressively. But mm. uh, and and we could even say in an already but not yet sense, I suppose. But the um, but but the be- the beautiful work of God is not just 
in the ambience of the new heavens and the new earth, the beautiful work of God is all of us in our still unique metaphysical identity mm-hmm. being and being transformed into the perfect image of Christ. Uh, and, and that is not just where our thinking will be corrected and our desires will be corrected. Yes, our thinking will be corrected and our desires will be corrected, but we ourselves will will uh, will uh, uh, have an effulgence of beauty and be able to perfectly and purely appreciate the beauty of the new heavens and the new earth. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so great, and and I think, well, for me, you know, uh, reading your work, um, wrestling through this, and, and thinking through it, it's been really encouraging for me to, to again, like I've already said, uh, to be thinking about God as beautiful, to be thinking about the the eschaton. Uh, so so often, you you had, had emphasized this just just now when you were speaking. Uh, yes, our thoughts will be uh, redeemed. I, I can't wait. I can't wait until uh, you know. You you've talked about God working in your heart to take away some of your ego. He's still doing that to me every day, <laughs> and I'm ready for that to not be happening mm-hmm. anymore. And me mm-hmm. just have conformed. But but even more so, just trying to think what will it look like to really uh, just be be a radiant uh, image bearer of God, like redeemed, fully redeemed. You know, uh, I I, th- I would say higher than Adam and Eve uh, mm-hmm. because we have the Holy Spirit and dwell. I'm a, I'm a you know part of the temple of the living God. I can't wait. It's it's amazing. So I think uh, I think Christians as Christians we need to reflect on that more often. And and when you're doing apologetics, it's not just I want to be right. I want this person to look like that as well. I want this person to be re- a redeemed image bearer, uh, and I want them to join me yeah. uh, with, with the Lord in the eschaton. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, I forget the what's his first name. The, uh, Douglas Farrow, Douglas Farrow, uh, now now a Catholic uh, theologian. I think he started off on the Protestant side, but um, he has a beautiful statement, which which I also include in my my latter part of the book. He's, he's comparing humans, glorified humans, with angels. Yeah. And you know, we use we use you're fami- we're all familiar, you know, uh, with the phrase "quorum Deo" before before God, before the face of God, and and we live "quorum Deo" in this world. Mm-hmm. Well, what Pharaoh says is there's going to be and, and the angels live quorum Deo in the presence of God in the heavenlies, the holy angels. Yeah. So but in the eschaton, we won't just be living in a very settled quorum Deo state. We'll be living. He calls it in Deo, you know, uses the Latin phrase in Deo. We'll, we won't we'll be moving in uh, our life will be moved within the very life of God himself. Mm which is a, a, a greater participation and a greater glory than even the holy angels will experience. Wow. Yeah, I think I think Lewis, C.S. Lewis gets to that when he, he says further in, further up and further in. Yeah. Uh, and it's yeah. the same kind of same kind of thing. I wanted to finish uh, just because we, we got a bunch of Catholic listeners and I love them. Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm more like Reformed Baptist myself. Um, yeah. What do we what do we make of the, the beatific vision? So we've been talking about beauty this whole time. Um, I, I don't know if I if I caught it in here or not. I wasn't really looking for it, but it just kind of popped up. Like, because yeah. you're you're reformed uh, yourself. What, what do you make of the beatific vision? Well, yeah, I mean, what I think is problematic is to like for in, in the early church, you know, the beatific vision was was this intellectual. You know, in in our our post death state, this intellectual perception of the essence of God. Right. You know, who you know, I don't know if it would be ocular or or just 
intuitively perceived, or, sure. but 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 it was always couched in the intellect, being mm. uh, kind of beholding the somehow the, the essence of God, and and I think I, I I don't like the phrase beatific vision. I I prefer the phrase, and I use it in in my book, beatific life. Yeah. Because our whole life will be bound up in as partakers of the divine nature. It's not just something that we'll be able to, to without compromise, behold in some sort of perception, you know, in a way of perceiving it. But uh, and you know, but 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 our whole life will be one of beatitude. Yeah, in, in our being and 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 every aspect of our eternal life doing. So. That's a corrective that I, I would add. Yeah. Uh, focusing on just some sort of beholding of the pure nature of God, m- maybe that's in some sense true, but it's but it's it's more than that. I believe it's yeah. more than that. It's 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 an infusion of our uh, entire being. Yeah, that's great. That's really cool. Yeah, I thought you were going to go a different direction. That's that's so cool because instead of just looking at it, you weren't looking through binoculars or in a stadium yeah. just watching the. No, no, we're it. He's infusing us. We are, you know, part, partaking of of that. Wow. Yeah, that's. What, what, let me ask you, what 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 direction did you think I was going? Well, usually, in? usually, you know, as reformed folks, we're like, um, it sounds like you want to. In, in emphasizing the beatific vision, it sounds like you want to break down the creator-creature distinction and have some kind of uh, some kind of immediate. So it's not mediated by anything of just experiencing God. And and we're like, well, you know, conceptually, I don't even know if that's possible because I'm a creature, and so so I think he's going to always have to condescend, and that's not not because of sin, but because of the creator-creature distinction. Yeah, we're, we're not going to see we're not going to see the triune God in, in, in immediately. We're yeah. going we're going to see God. We see God now. Uh, in our, you know, this world state yeah. uh, through, through Christ, right? In, right. In, the, in the age to come, we will know God and see God through Christ as well. So yeah. it's always kind of a mediated, uh, a mediated situation there. Yeah. And and uh, there's no reason to think that uh, you know the perception of Christ, however that is experienced by those that are dwelling with Him, will not be just you know something that can be described as as beatific yeah but 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 it's not just a perception of the glorious god it's it's our participation in his life that yeah. is our beatitude yeah i think that's huge so instead of just like the mount of transfiguration type experience where we see him in all his glory we, we're also participating in that as that's having the holy spirit living in us and us right. being fully regenerate and yeah and now, awesome. now, now it's already not yet, but the the day will come when it'll it'll everything will be already. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait for that. When when someone says, "Hey, you know, God told me," and it's like, "No, no, like there's Christ over there." Like he he did just tell. Like uh, I'm really excited for it, man. I, I'm I'm mm-hmm. I'm really excited. So I just want to thank thanks for your work here. Thanks for your work in in, uh, in theology, uh, the beauty of the Lord, theology as aesthetics. I. I it's been so helpful for me to, to reorient and, and I hope it's not a lesson that I have to continue to relearn, but I hope I can continue to hold on to God is beautiful. His plan is beautiful. And uh, it, it, this is a, an act of faith, but he's making me beautiful. <laughs> so you have to take that on faith. I, I, I was hoping you would, you would not leave that out. <laughs> yeah. God is beautiful. His plan is beautiful, but you are becoming more beautiful. Mm. And, I, and I am as we, yeah as we follow after Christ and yeah. that, and now we're also becoming more holy. We're also becoming more righteous, but 
but we should always say, yeah, more beautiful too in, in our being and our doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's so awesome. Well, we could talk about this more, uh, but for yeah. now it's going to have to do it. Uh, okay. This is, this has been Parker's mm-hmm. Pensies and as always all glory to God. <laughs>